Chris, good morning. It may just be a little bit of static, but is it raining where you are? No, no, it's perfectly quiet and beautiful and, well, ish. There's a woodpecker that keeps on hammering into a tree. I thought my neighbour had developed a penchant for hammering and then I realised it's a woodpecker who's banging his head against the, the tree. But no, there's no, there's no rain here. It's, it's actually dry for a change. So let's start with our first question that has come in from Keith. Hi, Naked Scientist. I saw on social media, um, that social media, of course, being very wide and broad, uh, I saw on social media that there's a tree with more than 30 types of fruit, different fruit on it. Is that possible? That's from Keith. Keith, I, I'm sceptical. If you have a picture or a reference, then do send it to me. But a tree that would produce so many different fruits sounds very unusual or I think unlikely to me. The fruiting bodies of, a, of any plant are its means of reproduction. And the one thing that might be going on here is that fruit obviously ripens. And the purpose of a fruiting body is, is you convert the ovary, which is the plant where the part of the plant where the female parts are that can produce new seeds, you convert that into a plump ripe fruit, which is then attractive to some kind of distributing body, whether it's a bird that likes a, a nice ripe fruit or an insect or a human. And you come along, you pick the fruit, eat it, and then you poo out the seed somewhere or you drop the seed somewhere. If you have a big stone in your fruit, for example, the animal's not going to eat that. It's going to eat the soft bit, but not before it's carted it off to a remote place and it plants a new plant for you. But to have different fruiting bodies would be very strange because the plant genetically is not distinct all over the place. So I think it's unlikely it would be able to do that. And I think that's probably a myth. But if, if I'm mistaken, please do let me know. I've not heard of this. I'm always willing to learn. Um, in a connected question, listener asks, what makes some flowers only have a scent at night? Well, plants make flowers, as we've just been talking about with fruits, in order to attract pollinators. Pollinators can be a range of different species, but unbelievably, moths do a lot of the pollination of flowers, and lots of moths are active only at night time. So scents are made because many insects have really powerful senses of smell. They don't have a nose like you and I, but they do have antennae which stick out from their heads. And inside those antennae are fine sprays of nerve endings, on the ends of which are detectors or chemical detectors for scent molecules, and they can detect scents down to parts per billion and because they have two antennae they can resolve the strength of a scent between the two by flying backwards and forwards across the scent trail and in that way they can work out where a smell is coming from and fly towards it they use this for mating to find the opposite sex there are various pheromones that moths for example use but equally they can go and smell their lunch so depending upon who the flower is trying to attract it will produce its attraction at the time when that in insect or pollinator is most active and if that happens to be at night time some flowers open at night some flowers produce coloration that makes them more visible under the low light conditions of night so they're more attractive to a pollinator but they also use scent because insects have such good senses of smell mm, just with regard to to, to uh, i think it was keith's question uh, around the 30 different fruits in one tree. A listener says it, it's from grafting. Uh, Sam Van Aken, an artist and professor at Syracuse University, uses chip grafting to create trees that each bear 40 oh, different brilliant. varieties of stone fruit and fruits with pits. You see, we have such a such a bright and intelligent listenership that they can they can produce the answer. And I should have thought of that. Yeah. I mean, it's not natural, but 
Absolutely. So what you can do and what many fruit tree growers do actually is they graft their fruiting part of the tree onto a different rootstock and this endows the tree with a range of different abilities and resilience, growth, size etc. But I hadn't thought of the possibility of not doing it with just one upper part of a tree or plant and and the same rootstock so that's ingenious and yes you absolutely could do that although it would be a pretty weird plant wouldn't it i wonder if the taste because where does a a fruit taste or come from or or as we're used to in a consumer market a sweet taste for a particular fruit would all these fruits then taste the same or no they wouldn't because the fruit is made by genetic instructions in the plant flower which are derived from the bit of the plant that is growing that fruit and so therefore the instructions for how to make the fruit what chemicals to put in the fruit in what concentrations those are what endow the fruit with its color and its its flavors those would be unique to each individual fruit so no you you would see some transmission of molecules across the plant obviously plants are sharing resources throughout the plant but the individual fruits would would follow a genetic recipe so i would speculate i don't know i haven't tried them but i would speculate that the apple bit of the plant should taste the same as the orange bit of the plant if, mm. if he is making apples and oranges but what an ingenious idea i'd love to see a picture if mm. anyone can can tweet at naked scientists and i'll share it to everybody else who follows us uh, a picture of the plant that would be great mm. and and kels river you want to talk about grafting yes i was going to talk about the grafting but i see the doctors uh cottoned on to it so um but i know there's i know people who have trees that they boast about which are uh, more than one type of uh, fruiting uh, as a result of the grafting. It's it's very interesting, really. Fascinating. And are you a gardener, a planter of, of things? I am from farming stock, <laughs> which is why I know all you about how it. You know about it. Thanks so much. Yes. And uh, Ron Kersenoff, how are you doing? <laughs> Morning, Ron. Hello. Hi, Chris. Hello. Chris, hi. Um, question, please. Uh, you might have had this before. Um, what makes Google so clever? <laughs> Hello, Ron. Well, Google actually was born in the late 90s, early noughties, about the year 2000, 2001. And what the two researchers who actually founded Google did was to realize that you can make computers all work together. So although they're behaving as though they're one computer, you've distributed the problem across many computers. And they realized that as the internet grew, that it became a problem keeping track on where everything that was in it was. And when someone changed something, how you detect those changes quickly. And so the way that Google, as many search engines work, is that they go prowling around the internet and the computers there will behave like a human. They will read web pages, they follow links on web pages, they read and digest the content on the web page, they extract data from the web page and they're looking for instance in terms of what words are there, what frequency of words are on the page, how those words are related to each other. So if you've got uh, the word Leicester and Kivit coming up a lot on a page together, then the uh, assumption is that probably this is a page about Leicester Kivit or Cape Talk or The Naked Scientist. And it builds a score for the amount or representation of those words together on that page. And also in relation to other content, what other subjects are on that page. And each page therefore attracts a sort of ranking or score based on what it's likely to be about. And this is compared by a huge bank of computers 
against all other pages on the internet to come up with what is at the top of the rankings and what's lower down the rankings. And they're continuously tweaking their algorithm for how they return to you the best search results. But remember, Google is not a search engine to help you find information. Google, owned by parent company Alphabet, is a system for actually selling advertising. And it does that by selling you the service or finding a web page you're interested in, which then happens to also push adverts at you or pushes advertising alongside the results you do actually want. Or because you're looking for a service or a particular form of goods, it will sell you an advert for a service providing those goods. So it's all about advertising, but it happens to be very good at finding content on the internet that we want to use and hence it returns it but it does it by using massive parallel computing and dis distributing the tasks among a massive massive army of computers and you you think you're talking to one computer called google you're talking to a to a basically a, a legion of computers that are all harnessed together and who's the, sorry chris and who pays for the the computers how are they um uh, where are they distributed throughout the world the computers are distributed all over the world, and this is how cloud computing works. Because if you were to pull a web page from South Africa, for example, but that page was in, say, London, then the connection South Africa-London is quite fast. But actually, if you've got a local copy of the content, then it's even faster. So the way the internet also works is they use what are called CDNs, which are content distribution networks. And you clone your content to data centers, which are local to major population centers so that when the data are requested, they come from the closest source to you. And in that way, you've got a fresh, fast supply of the data. Where does it all get paid for? Because these data centers full of computers are burning off electricity like it's going out of fashion. And in fact, they produce more CO2 than the whole airline industry put together. It's not unusual for a big data center to be chucking heat away to the sky from cooling these computers down at the rate of three or four megawatts. Uh, the answer to who pays for that is that you and I do, because by uh, using the service, we are basically relieving advertisers of their money, and that money is used to a enrich the company and return profits to shareholders, but at the same time also to pay their electricity bill. Ron Kersnoff, really appreciate that. You can ask Dr. Chris Smith a science or natural history related questions. Remember, we can't answer your personal medical questions, go see your doctor, go to a clinic. You can't ask necessarily, ask Dr. Chris for his opinion on your bum knee. Your doctor can provide you with that answer. Please, please, please ask Dr. Chris to explain why there, are no, why, why there is no tread on mo motorcycle tires. They are bald, smooth. How do they hold onto the road? Well, there should be tread on your motorcycle tyres. Um, it depends what sort of tyre we're talking about and what you want to do with that tyre. If you are going off-road and you need to make sure that you've got plenty of grip, then you don't want completely slick, smooth tyres, especially if it's going to get muddy. And the reason we put tread on tyres is because when a tyre goes across a road surface, the rubber being flexible flexes into the road surface and has contact between the wheel and the road but if water is in the way then you get a layer of water being squidged between the rubber and the road and that will act as a frictionless surface and will cause the tyre to slip if you put tread on the tyre you are creating a, a, a runway for the water to flow out so when the rubber squeezes onto the road surface any water that's there can be squished into the channel that's the tread and get out of the way 
But if you've got a really dry road, then you don't need a system to get rid of water because that means you're reducing the amount of rubber that is in contact with the road. And the best way to grip the road is to have as much rubber of the tyre in contact with as much road surface as possible because the more contact there is, the more surface there is to transmit force between the motorcycle and the road and therefore gain control and also accelerate and decelerate the motorcycle. So it will come down to what conditions are you trying to drive on. If you're driving on a really dry road, you want to go really fast in a race, you want the maximum contact between the bike tyre and the road, you don't want tread getting in the way, so you have a big flat slick tyre. Same with Formula One. If you are doing off-road or you're doing wet racing or driving on condi varied conditions, you need tread on there which will allow the water to get out of the way to keep the rubber in contact with the road so you keep control. Someone is asking, remember we asked you, asked you about pregnant women and blue toilet seats? Yeah. Uh, a listener is asking if, if, you, if you've gotten back to us. I'm, with I'm, I'm still a, working on this one. Still working on this one. I was hoping I would get a slew or a loo even of uh, speculations <laughs> about this from Cape Talk listeners. But nothing's come in yet. It's gone very quiet. So I don't know if people are off inspecting their lavatory seats or, or if this was just a one-off observation. But no, I'm still working on this one. I have nothing to update was, you on quite yet. It was only the one listener who asked the question, my wife and someone who backed it up. So it must be true, <laughs> Chris. Uh, but also another reflection of last week, where I can find it, Roland says he, he wasn't really satisfied. He needed some more, you know, backing up of on a question that he asked about, um, yeah, it is. Hello, uh, Lester, last week, the prof, Failed to explain how uh, the prodigy brain is able to learn how to speak seven languages, and that had it had never, or it had never heard a piano classic before. The child is not old enough to learn how to play piano, but can play. Thank you, uh, Roland. Uh, we'll ask Chris again, Roland. I'm, I want to add to that a a a two year old, which I'm following in on on TikTok on social media. And this two-year-old seemingly has the ability to read very simple, simple words already in a way that they seem to understand how sentences are formed and sounds. How is that possible in a very, very young child? Chris? Well, first of all, let's be clear. You're not born with these abilities to suddenly do something. You wouldn't be born knowing the works of Shakespeare or knowing how to play a piece of Mozart. What you're born with is an amazing brain with more than 100 billion nerve cells in it, which all connect to each other in a unique spectrum of ways and unique constellation of ways. Every single one of us is different. Our brains are all different. And that brain is very plastic. In other words, moldable at a young age. And in some people, the brain develops at slightly different rates and some people's brain might develop a bit faster and the parts of the brain that are involved in learning and memory may be more enhanced in some people at some ages compared to others which means they may have an ability to learn faster and particularly to master certain domains or certain activities more than their peers but remember it's all about a spectrum and there is no such thing as normal we have a range of abilities as humans and we're all different and because everyone is born different it means that everyone is endowed with a different skill set and some people will be at one end of a spectrum where they are really very good at doing certain things but usually there are trade-offs and you may have a massive brain but you may be less good on the sports field you may be an outstanding golfer but you might not be particularly good at playing the piano. So there's a range of abilities, and some people are born with an ability to 
pick up information and assimilate that information very, very quickly. But just because you're really good at doing that at two does not mean you'll be really good at doing that at 22. So if you've got the kid in class who's absolutely Einstein's prodigy and is brilliant, then Mm. just because they're like that at 13, it doesn't mean that you should think there's no hope for me because I can never compete with that because the brain continues to develop and change throughout your life until the day we die. But it reaches its maximum sort of mature fixed state by about 25. And so there's everything to play for when you're young. But you have one go when you're young at really, Mm. really using that amazing plastic machine in your head. And the really good example of that is that children unerringly, usually unless there's something dramatically wrong, learn to speak Mm. very, very quickly. They do it by never going to school. But by the time they're five and they go to school, we need a teacher to teach us another language. We need a teacher Mm. to teach us to do anything after that. So when you're really young, your brain is really very good at teaching itself what it needs to know. And that includes picking up on what's going on in the environment and working out how to fit you into that environment so you'll be successful. And that's why your brain's so Mm. good at it. What is myasthenia gravis? Thank you, D. What is myasthenia gravis? Myasthenia gravis is an autoimmune condition where the body has made antibodies against the neuromuscular junction acetylcholine receptor. So when you have a nerve and a muscle and one wants to make the other work, a signal comes out of the nerve, goes onto the muscle and says become active, contract. You have between the nerve and the muscle a gap. It's almost like a synapse in the brain. It's called the neuromuscular junction. And the nerve squirts out the chemical acetylcholine, which then goes across this gap, locks onto these molecular docking stations or acetylcholine receptors on the muscle. And when the acetylcholine binds on, it activates the muscle. For some reason, some people develop a immune response called an autoimmune response against their own acetylcholine receptors and this means you get antibodies that bind to them and rob them away from the muscle so when the nerve transmitter comes out it doesn't actually have the ability to activate the muscles strongly enough and this makes people have a a condition where they can get movements going but they get tired very Mm. easily so if you ask someone to lift their arms up above their head and keep doing that so put their do their sort of hands fingers knees and toes type dance and you keep sort of pointing at the ceiling and down to your shoulders Mm. up to the ceiling down to your shoulders a normal person will just do that until you tell them to stop someone with myasthenia gravis will get very tired doing that very quickly but luckily there's a way to solve it and there are drugs which we can give which are acetylcholine esterase inhibitors acetylcholine esterase is the chemical that breaks down acetylcholine and and terminates the connection between the nerve and the muscle it stops the signaling if you block that enzyme with one of these drugs then you can prolong the acetylcholine signal and in that way you surmount the problem of uh, the immune system trying to uh, get rid of your acetylcholine receptors so you can give people symptomatic control and in the meantime you can also investigate why they've got this condition and there's a range of reasons why it can happen and a range of ways to control it to keep people's symptoms uh, um, tolerable. Uh, this may be a question about language, um, but also maybe they be, there may be scientific and medical differences. What is the difference between a disease, a sickness, a illness, a malaise, an affliction, or a disorder? Are these all interchangeable or do they mean completely different things when it comes to medical science? 
they are relatively interchangeable terms. The one that often gets muddled up is what a symptom is and what a disease is. Symptoms are the clinical manifestation that a patient complains of when they have a condition. So if I have a cold, the disease I've got is the cold, I have a viral infection, but my symptoms will be a runny nose, a cough, a temperature and sneezing. So if you're symptomatic with something, your symptoms are displaying or the clinical manifestations you display of the underlying disease. But there's a range of different words that mean there's something wrong. And we tend to use different words to, there's no prescription to use a medical term for which words should go with which things, but we tend to use different words to describe different situations. So we tend to talk about cancer as a disease. We tend to talk about tuberculosis or HIV as an infection. Well, they both cause disease. They're both a form of disease. And then you can have depression and mental illness. Well, those are also diseases in the respect that, that a, a part of the body, the brain, isn't working in quite the way you would like it to, and it can be fixed. But we don't tend to talk about that as a disease. We tend to talk about mental illness, for example. So that there are nuances in how we use these terms, but really they're all interchangeable. Um, I'm a very big cricket fan and one of my heroes was Waka Yunus and so I really love this question Angelo please ask the naked scientist how reverse swing works on a cricket ball well, when you when you want to make a ball swing, and it doesn't matter whether it's cricket or actually you watch Wimbledon, the same science is in play. And what is happening, it's all about the, the spin on the ball and its impact on the surrounding air. So let, let's think about the, the cricket ball. If you take a ball and you launch it through the air, as the ball goes through the air, when it's going at very high speed the air is made to flow all around the ball in all directions in a very turbulent way. But as the ball slows down, the air begins to stick to the surface of the ball. Now, if the ball is turning, so if you have uh, made the ball spin as you throw it, it's turning in one direction. And this means that as the air hits the ball, it sticks to the ball on one side for a bit longer than the other side because the ball is turning into the direction of travel, let's say. And if the air sticks to the ball's surface, and the sticking to the surface is a phenomenon called the Coander effect, after Henri Coander, I think his name was, he's an Eastern European physicist. And when the air sticks to the ball surface, if you pull two things together, then they both exert a force on each other. That's Isaac Newton's third law. So if the air is pulled onto the surface of the ball, then it's also pulling the ball back towards the direction the air is being pulled from. And if the air is doing that more on one side of the ball than the other you're going to pull the ball more in one direction than the other. So it feels a force. And this effect is called the Magnus effect. And so when a cricketer wants to swing the ball or a Wimbledon player wants to swing the ball, they will do it in such a way that they say shine one side of the ball. And that makes the air stick better to the un unshiny side than the shiny side. And then when they throw the ball, because the air is sticking asymmetrically to the surface of the ball once it's slowed down enough, this will exert an asymmetric force on the ball and cause it to swing and move. And the same is, is done by, by brilliant tennis players. They will whack the ball in such a way that they put top spin or bottom spin on the ball and that makes it behave unpredictably because, not for them, but for the op opposition. Because as the ball slows down and starts to, to stick to the air better, then that effect kicks in and causes the ball to abruptly change its direction. And it's how footballers, when they do those amazing corner kicks and the ball looks like it's going off towards the halfway line and then suddenly it swerves in and, and plants itself in the top corner of the goal. 
same science. As you slow down, the ball through to air resistance slows down. It starts to glue itself to the air. The air starts to stick to the surface of the ball and the Magnus effect kicks in and you get oh. that, that asymmetric force which, which causes the ball's trajectory to curve. Yeah, remember Roberto Carlos versus France and that banana kick. Uh, what a great goal. Looked like it went one way and then curved back in quite violently. Darren's asking, uh, Hi Lester, a geography teacher once boggled my mind when he said, the tides don't come in and out, we go into the tides. What does he mean by that? Right, well, the earth is three quarters ocean and water. And the earth is turning and it's doing one complete revolution every 24 hours. We have above the earth's surface the moon. And so the earth is turning inside the orbit of the moon. So as the Earth turns, the Moon appears to go above the sky, across the sky, but that's because we're turning and leaving the Moon behind. The Moon is big, and it's exerting a big gravitational attraction towards the Earth. So it is pulling the Earth towards the Moon. We're pulling it towards us as well, of course, but that means that water on the Earth's surface is being pulled towards the Moon where the Moon is. So you will create a bulge of water on the Earth's surface facing the Moon. You also create another one on the opposite side of the Earth away from the Moon because that's the farthest point away and the Earth and the water moves leaving that bulge of water behind. But we'll leave that to one side for a minute. So you create on the Earth's surface a blob of water which as the planet turns, effectively that bulge of water, the Earth is turning into the bulge of water that's being pulled towards the Moon. So he's right in the respect that you you are driving into a bulge of water and the tide is, is not moving towards you. You are moving towards that bulge mm. of water. And then as you go through the bulge of water, you have your high tide. As you come out the other side, the tide appears to be mm. going out again. You're leaving that bulge behind. Fascinating. Dr. Christmas, thank you so much. I'm not here for a couple of weeks. You have capable standards and people to talk to over the next three and a bit. Three and a bit. Uh, but yeah, looking forward to, you, to seeing you on the other side in May. I'm Hope looking forward to it. Well. I'm going to miss you. Oh, I'll miss you too, sir. We'll do so again. Don't worry. First week of May, we talk to you. We talk again. Dr. Chris Smith, the naked scientist. Thank you so much. Looking forward to chatting to him very, very soon. Hey, hier ist Miriam von ACAST. Du möchtest deinen eigenen Podcast starten oder suchst nach mehr HörerInnen für deine Show? Bei ACAST machen wir Podcasting einfach. Du teilst deine Story, wir erledigen den Rest für dich. Acast ist das weltweit führende, unabhängige Podcast-Unternehmen. Vergrößere dein Publikum über alle verfügbaren Podcast-Plattformen und nutze dabei die innovativsten Podcasting-Tools und Insights im Markt. Wir helfen PodcasterInnen, mit ihren Shows Geld zu verdienen. Und das ganz zu ihren Bedingungen. Ob mit Werbung oder mit exklusiven Vorteilen für zahlende Fans – Mache deinen Podcast zur Einnahmequelle. 40.000 PodcasterInnen vertrauen Acast weltweit. Starte auch du deine Podcast-Karriere mit uns. Besuche einfach acast.com und sichere dir mit dem Code START22 ganze drei Monate unseres Influencer-Pakets kostenlos.